Let's turn in our Bibles once again to the book of Isaiah, chapter 36, this evening as we continue our journey through Isaiah's prophecy together. You'll notice Isaiah 36 through 39, I believe I mentioned last time in our session together, really gives to us sort of a, a different section in Isaiah's prophecy uh, where what we're really getting here is something that's a lot more of a historical narrative describing the events that in many ways were sort of the backdrop of the first 35 chapters that we were looking at together. If you remember a lot of the backdrop in the first 35 chapters, there was sort of this underlying reference in the prophecies and messages of Isaiah of the impending Assyrian invasion and coming against the southern kingdom of Judah and God promising that he would bring deliverance in light of that. And now as we come to chapters 36 through 39, particularly chapters 36 and 37 that we'll see this evening, God gives us the record, the actual narrative historically of the events that were going on. Now, one of the things that is interesting is what we get record of here in chapters 36 and 37, and I would like to, Lord willing, because it is kind of a, a flowing narrative and a encapsulated story, a unit here, if we could to kind of get through chapters 36 and 37 in our study this evening, is we get a record of a historical account of something that comes to us three times, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, the same things, again, for those of you who've been with us uh, throughout the journey from the book of Genesis, these same events are described in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, and then also we saw them again recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And now for the third time, we get these events recorded for us here uh, of Hezekiah and Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh and them coming up and threatening the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Once again, now for the third time here in chapters 36 and 37, we get the same account recorded for us. Now, God doesn't waste time in repetition. So apparently there must be something about this account and the lessons within it that God found valuable enough to give to us three times repetitiously, just like in the gospel accounts where you have repeated events described in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oftentimes you find that the most in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the synoptic gospels. Uh, but when God repeats something, there's obviously an intention for reemphasis. In the New Testament, Paul, we have his conversion described three times for us in the book of Acts. So again, God found that very important. But some of this may be very familiar. We've heard this. We've certainly referenced these events as we've been going through the first 35 chapters together. But this now gives to us the actual descriptive narrative of what events were transpiring, which was a lot of the, again, the, the backdrop for chapters 1 through 35 of a lot of what Isaiah was prophesying in light of. So if you look at me in chapter 36, verse 1, it tells us here that it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now, King Hezekiah, we know, was one of the, we might say, good or godly kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. During the time of the divided kingdom, when you had the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, and then you had the southern kingdom referred to as Judah, which was Judah and Benjamin, 
typically you had kings reigning over both territories and they would rotate through kings, different spans in their reign. In the northern kingdom, there was never one good king. They were always evil. They were always doing ungodly things. In the southern kingdom, they would kind of bounce back and forth. Uh, you'd have some good kings. You'd have some bad kings. Hezekiah was one of the good kings who did some real wonderful things, initiated some godly reforms, restoring temple worship, and, and God did some really good and wonderful things through his life. And so here you have this godly man, Hezekiah. Certainly he wasn't flawless. He wasn't perfect. He had his share of errors and mistakes in his life, and the word of God's not silent about that, but a rather good and godly king overall. And now we see that this good and godly king experiences some real intense, if you would, enemy opposition that comes against his life. And I just bring this up to you because a lot of what we look at here as we see the enemy come and speak threatening words and condemning messages and trying to arouse doubt and fear and discouragement, a lot of this to me is very picturesque of what the enemy of our soul seeks to do in the way that he brings attack and assault against our lives spiritually. And like King Hezekiah, if you seek to walk with God and do things for God and represent the Lord and please the Lord, you should take into consideration that you are going to experience a degree of enemy attack and opposition and resistance against your life. Uh, when we seek to serve the Lord or walk closely with Jesus, those are not going to be times where the enemy stands by idly and just you know, gives us maybe a standing ovation, cheers us on like we're running the race well in the marathon. Those are the times where the enemy is going to try and do what he can to distract, to discourage, to do anything he can really to, to stop us, to make us stumble, to get us off track. And unfortunately, Hezekiah did make some mistakes during some of this resistance and, and the threat that came against him. And, and in some ways, he gave the enemy some territory by giving in to some of the spiritual warfare. But I think it's good to recognize that this is just a common pattern that happens in our lives. And I think as believers, we need to stay conscious of this reality. The Bible tells us all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And, and Jesus made it very evident to us that if they hated him and persecuted him, that we are going to experience a degree as well. And when we are going forward in the kingdom of God and we're going against the, the patterns of this world and, and we're resisting the things that the devil is doing to try and bring you know immoral destruction and rob, kill, and destroy, we're going to get some counter-resistance in those times. Uh, and one of the strong efforts of the enemy many a times comes through words and thoughts and attacking us in that way to dissuade us or to try and destroy us. And if he can't get us to do something immoral or foolish in our behavior, he has other avenues. And many a times it's through his lying voice and his deception and ways that he tries to discourage and dissuade us that often he attacks us. And so I just want you to keep that in mind as a backdrop as we go through this, that many of this I think we can draw a lot of principle from. It is very uh, reflective of the way that the voice of our enemy comes against us in our own lives. So we're told here that it was the 14th year, particularly verse 1 of Hezekiah's reign, that Sennacherib, who was reigning at that time as the king of Assyria, 
He now comes up, it says, against, verse 1 there, the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now, what that's describing, over 40-some fortified cities existed at that time. A fortified city meant a reinforced city to be able to reinforce yourself, fortified against enemy assault. But nonetheless, the king of Assyria at this time had been conquering lots of territories, Even in the words of the messengers here, we're going to hear, hey, it didn't help this particular territory when they resisted us. We conquered them. We conquered them. And at this time, Assyria, like a wrecking ball, is moving through, and they are a strong empire and a strong military force at this time. They've already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and now they've come down through the south. And because of some of the mistakes of the southern kingdom— and not trusting the Lord, they became vulnerable to enemy opposition. And what the Bible's pointing out to us is that he had already come against numerous fortified cities in Judah in the southern kingdom, and he had already been successful in his campaigns against them. So the point here is they are already suffering great defeat. They're in a time where they're already weakened. They've already been defeated on a number of different fronts. They've already had some enemy, if you would, attack and success, unfortunately, to bring some uh, assaults where the enemy was victorious against them. And now he's zeroing in on Jerusalem because that's the capital city. And that was the last city that if they could conquer Jerusalem, the capital city, that would be the conquest of the southern kingdom. So this is sort of the the, the final stand, you know, the custard's last stand, the kind of thing like this is if they can capture Jerusalem— They're going to conquer Judah, the southern kingdom as well. And so this is a very important and a very desperate time and why God needed to intervene in this situation because ultimately, remember, the southern kingdom was not conquered until Babylon conquered them later on. So God is going to give them victory. They come very close to defeat by the Assyrians in the south, but ultimately it's God's intervention as we know. We've talked about this numerous times where God overthrows the Assyrians but not before a lot of difficulty and attack and threat comes against them. Verse 2 tells us, Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with, notice, a great army. Now, we know by the end of chapter 37 that 185,000 Assyrian troops are killed by the angelic intervention in that one evening. So whether that is a representation of this great army, that's a pretty great army, or whether that was the entirety of the great army, 185,000 soldiers outside of the city of Jerusalem laying siege to it, threatening to come in and to invade and attack, was a very intimidating thing. So the king of Assyria sends now Rabshakeh, and that that name there, Rabshakeh, understand, I say name, it's actually not a name, it's really more of a reference to a title. Uh, the term Rabshakeh is a term that speaks of sort of a, a chief of staff or a military general, if you would. So this was kind of like the, the, the chief general leading the army campaign on behalf of the king, the Rabshakeh. This was more his title and his position. And he comes up now, it says, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So they're now at the capital city where we know they lay siege around the city to try and starve them out. And many times they would lay siege, and sieges at times could last six months, up to two years, five years. Some sieges, they say, lasted as long as 10 to 15 years. They're very patient ways to just surround the city 
And basically, you didn't let anything in or out, and in a period of time, you just patiently would starve them out. Starvation would set in, sickness, disease, suffering, insanity. People would begin to lose their minds because of the being trapped inside the city. So this is what they do. They come up now, and they're about to lay siege around the city as they come up to Jerusalem on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Verse 3 says, And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household in Shebna the scribe and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder came out to him. So they're outside the city. King Hezekiah now sends out some representatives, if you would, some cabinet members, Eliakim and Shebna, it says, and Joah. They go out to the Rabshakeh to be able to sort of dialogue and discuss what's going on, if there's any terms or arrangements that can be made before the invasion and the attack begins. They go out to dialogue. And verse 4, here's where the threatening begins. It says, Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, in other words, to your king, thus says the great king. Now, now notice there the, the arrogancy in that. You tell your king that the great king, that is the, the highest king, the king with all the power, go in there and tell your measly king that the great king, the king of Assyria, says, what confidence is this in which you trust? In other words, do you really think the thing that you are confident in is going to uphold you or is going to last? What they begin to do right away, again, and they're not even mentioning yet what they're confident, they just say, look, your confidence is worthless. You're putting confidence in that? That is a worthless, vain thing to put trust and confidence in. And boy, is that not so similar to the sound of the voice of the enemy of our soul? You know, the very first time you hear the devil's voice is in the book of Genesis, of course, chapter 3. And what is the first thing you hear the devil doing when his voice is recorded in Scripture? He's posing questions, right? And particularly, what is he posing questions about? He's trying to disrupt Adam and Eve's confidence in the nature of God, in the word of God, in the goodness of God, and in a very similar way. In essence, he's saying, look, you really believe and you're going to have confidence in your God that he's good? You're going to have confidence that his... God hasn't really said that. You're going to put confidence in the word of God. You're, you're making your decisions based upon the word of God. And, and, and what confidence is that? God, God, you, God's not reliable. And from the very start, this is often one of the ways that the enemy and his voice can be detected is he poses questions. And he tries to cause us to question our confidence in God, in God's nature, in God's goodness, what we know about God. He tries to get us to question our confidence in the Word of God and the reliability of Scripture and basing our life and our belief and our decisions upon the truths of Scripture rather than our feelings or rather than other things. And the things that we rightly put confidence in as believers, the enemy wants to try and shake our confidence and cause us to doubt. He seeks to inspire doubt. And so here they say, what confidence is this in which you trust? I say to you, verse 5, speak of having plans and power for war. In other words, you, you have a plan that you're going to stand strong. You think that you have power to succeed in this battle, in this war. You think you're strong enough 
and you think you're wise enough and strategic enough to succeed in this warfare, but they are mere words. In other words, those are worthless ideas. You might as well cast those ideas away. Don't trust in your resources or your strength. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Again, it's worthless, the enemy's saying. It's worthless to rebel against me. And I think sometimes that's one of the little subtle lies of the enemy as well, that when we genuinely try and resist the enemy, right? The Bible tells us in the book of James, submit yourself to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Another way of saying resist the devil is rebel against him. (laughs) When he's trying to tempt you to do something, he's trying to deceive you, he's trying to persuade you to sin or do something wrong, to resist his temptation is to rebel against it and say, I am not doing that. No, I'm not following you. No, I'm not giving into that lustful desire or that selfish attitude or that selfish desire or that proud you know, uh, you know, decision I'm about to make because my pride is what's driving. And, and, and we need to resist and rebel against that. And many times the devil tries to deceptively convince us, do you really think it's going to work trying to resist me? Do you really think you're going to be able to resist me long-term? You you might as well just give in. You're not going to be able to resist me long-term. Eventually, you're going to cave. And again, trying to create doubt in our minds, they say, you know, why are you rebelling against me? The enemy says, that's not going to work. You'll never succeed in rebelling against me. Look, he says, verse 6, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt on which if a man leans, it will go in his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Now, this was one of the errors, and we've talked about this already, so we won't belabor the subject, that they were making is rather than as they saw the enemy encroaching and they were getting conquered in different territories in Judah and the fear was beginning to creep in, remember, rather than turning to the Lord right from the start, they were trying to make alliances with different world powers and and other people who had strong militaries, and Egypt was one of them. And basically, they were turning to the world to solve their problems rather than turning to God. And they were looking to Egypt, the arm of flesh, and thinking, okay, we got a problem here, but the way we solve this is, is how does Egypt solve their problems? How do they handle things out there? Let's adopt their patterns. Let's do things the way that, that they do, and let's hire them, and let's pay them off. And so whether it was the Egyptians or other territories, they were trying to hire mercenaries to come in and to fight battles with them. And remember, this is one of the things that Isaiah, as God's prophet, was rebuking them for, saying to them, why are you trusting Egypt? Trust me. And this was something that displeased the Lord, that he saw this as a disloyalty, that they were looking to the arm of flesh and their own human endeavors and worldly things and worldly resources instead of just praying and seeking God and continuing to let God be involved in the situation. And here, kind of sad, you know, it's kind of sad when the enemy indicts us with true things that we are doing wrong. That's never a good thing when the enemy is able to identify some of our own errors. So there's a part of this that's true. Why are you trusting in in Egypt? Verse 7, it goes on to say, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places, whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall not worship before this altar? Now, I want you to notice what the enemy is doing here as the voice of the enemy is kind of bringing up something that Hezekiah had done. 
And we know from the accounts in 2 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 32, this is part of what Hezekiah did when he was doing what was good and right, is he was taking down the high places. The high places were areas where they would create altars and places of worship on higher elevations, because this was a thing that many pagan uh, gods would be worshipped in that manner. You were higher in elevation, so it seemed like you were higher and closer to God. And, and Hezekiah understood, no, we're to worship God the prescribed way in the temple, according to the word of God. And, and so Hezekiah was, look, stop worshiping about those high places. He was tearing down those altars. And even though these high places, some of them, the people were supposedly worshiping Jehovah God at their high places, they were wrong altars. And Hezekiah was removing these things because he knew they weren't in consistency with the word of God. And notice here how the enemy voice here is referring to those events and saying, look, you shouldn't trust the Lord because didn't he tear down the high places of Yahweh God and tell people, don't worship the Lord at those high places? He wasn't saying don't worship the Lord. He was just saying don't worship the Lord on your terms. And what, what the enemy is doing here is basically he's taking events and he's twisting the facts. And he's twisting the facts of the events and he's making it look like that what Hezekiah was doing was saying, don't worship the Lord your God, when that's not what Hezekiah was doing. Hezekiah was saying, listen, I'm just telling you worship God properly. I'm not telling you don't worship God. I'm just telling you don't worship God at the high places. But this is a, a subtle way the enemy works because, again, the Bible tells us that he's a master of deception. The Bible tells us Jesus says that he's the father of lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. And one of the ways the enemy works is he, he has a way of twisting things and taking events or taking situations and manipulating the facts a little bit and putting a spin on things so that all of a sudden people get wrong perceptions and they make assumptions and, and he kind of takes what may be something that is true or accurate to a degree, but then he puts a spin on it. And whether it's twisting the word of God a little bit, and to me that's one of the most heinous ways to do that, this is one of the ways the enemy will work. He'll kind of take something and twist it a little bit to try and cause confusion and to misguide minds. He says, verse 8, Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master. In other words, you might as well just give a pledge, make allegiance with my master, the king of, of, uh, of Assyria, with Sennacherib. And he says, And I will give you 2,000 horses. The enemy always promises something of prosperity if we're willing to enter into a relationship and partnership with him. He says, I'll give you 2,000 horses, but then watch the insult, if you're able to put riders on them. In other words, look, I can give you 2,000 horses, and even still, if I give you 2,000 horses, you'll never have enough able men to put riders on them. It's almost like uh, what do we call that? Uh, uh, you, almost, you give somebody a handicap, right? In, a, in like golf or something like that. It's almost like, well, I'll give you a handicap here. I'll give you 2,000 of our horses to fight the battle with us and we'll still put a whooping on you because you won't even be able to put any riders on the horses. He says, you don't even have the able men to put on them. In other words, he's questioning their capability. He's questioning their ability. Again, this is just more mockery. It's more discouragement. He's trying to strike fear in the hearts of people. The enemy is trying to do what he can to intimidate. And the real message of the enemy here is, is why even try? You're going to fail. 
why even make an effort? You don't have the ability to succeed. It's never going to work out to your favor and advantage. And really, the whole concept here is, look, what you're doing is doomed for failure. Just accept the reality. You're going to fail. You're never able and never going to succeed. And look, th that is a common discouraging thought that the enemy loves to sow in the hearts and minds of people. And to a degree, that's true if we're trusting in our ability. If we're trusting in God's ability, that's a whole different thing because with God, all things are possible. But Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, right? But the enemy will do this because he, he seeks to discourage. He wants to intimidate. And so he says, look, I'll even give you 2,000 horses. That's if you could put riders on them. How then will you repel, they say, one captain of the least, even the least, he says, of my master servants, and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Verse 10, they go on to change a little bit. Have I now come up without the Lord against the land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, oh boy, now we're, now we're taking the Lord's name into it. The Lord said to me, go up against that land and destroy it. So now, boy, they, they really get under him. They say, look, do you really think we're not here and this isn't happening and your world's not falling apart and things aren't going bad because this is the Lord doing this. This is the Lord who's come against you. You know it's the Lord. The Lord is the one who's trying to bring you down and literally he sent me here, they say, the Lord has sent me to go up against this land and to destroy it. Now, if you remember early in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah did clearly indicate that God was going to use the Assyrians as his instrument to humble and to discipline the people of God, the nation of Judah. But nowhere did God say he was going to destroy them. How could God destroy them? You're talking about through Judah, the messianic line. God wasn't going to destroy Judah. They're saying here, the Lord has sent me to do these things to bring pain and problems, and the Lord sent me to destroy you. So again, what are we doing here? We're, we're, we're trying to spiritualize the situation. We're, we're taking the Lord's name into the situation. And now we're taking something and we're exaggerating it way further. We're basically taking the word of God and now we're adding things to it. We're manipulating what it says. The Lord had said that they would be the instrument to discipline them. There was a partial truth in that, but the Lord had not sent the Assyrians there to destroy the people of Judah and to conquer Jerusalem. That was outside of God's plan. And so again, this is where discernment is very valuable, and this is where a key matter is I need to know the Word of God to be able to discern when the enemy is taking a little bit of truth and then he's either adding to it or distorting it or, or twisting something around, and I need to have enough discernment to realize that just because somebody invokes the name of the Lord doesn't mean the Lord's in something. The Bible says, test the spirits to see whether they be of God. Lots of people say, the Lord told me. The Lord told me to do this. The Lord wants me to do this. The Lord put this on my heart. That's great. He didn't put it on my heart. Put it on your heart. That's between you and if it is of the Lord. And just because somebody uses the name of the Lord, and even if somebody wants to use the name of the Lord and spiritual lingo and spiritual phrases to try and manipulate and get what they want from you in some way or to try and beat up on you, listen, do you think that this is not a subtle way the enemy knows how to attack at times too? 
Remember Paul the Apostle talks about the reality that the devil himself masquerades like an angel of light. Paul says he has his own ministers of righteousness. That's pretty freaky. That he has his own ministers of righteousness. The devil is a very wise and strategic person when it comes to warfare. And here, boy, they say, look, the, hey, the Lord sent us up here. So you might as well just give up, give in. The Lord has sent us to come destroy you. He's told us to come wreck you. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. Now, this was a common language in that day, but most of the Jews didn't know that. The Jews spoke Hebrew. So they say, hey, do us a favor. You're going to freak everybody out listening to these things. <laughs> speak to us in Aramaic. We understand the Aramaic, but don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who were on the wall. Again, they're, look, stop saying this stuff. You're going to freak out all our people. So they, would you please stop scaring everyone? You're striking fear in the hearts of people. But that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. That's why it says, verse 12, the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me and to you to speak these words and not the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Now, that gives you a picture of what happens when a siege gets bad. He refers to what happens at times in sieges when people literally become so desperate. He refers to, talk about gross, eating and drinking their own waste. That's how deplorable conditions can become. So the Rabshakeh totally ignores the request, and he says, I'm going to strike incredible fear in the hearts of the people because fear is a powerful, powerful motivator. If you can get someone fearful or you can get people fearful, boy, you can manipulate them to no end because fear is a powerful motivator. And so they want to strike fear in the hearts of people, and this is why one of the ways the enemy will work is to try and incite tremendous fear, anxiety, worry. I believe you know, tremendous fear and paranoia and anxiety is one of the strongest tools of the enemy in the minds and the emotions of people because people make a lot of bad decisions when they're terrified, when they're afraid, and when they're not confident in having faith. It's the opposite of faith. So they want to terrify the people, and that's why they're saying these things. The Rabshakeh then stood and called out with a loud voice, notice, in Hebrew, and said, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he continues to speak in Hebrew purposely and to arouse great fear in the hearts of the people and notice here, speaking in front of the people, he basically tells them two things. One, he says, verse 13, do not listen to Hezekiah and let him deceive you, telling you that God is going to deliver you and that God is going to help you. In other words, one of the first things he's saying to them, to the people is, listen, don't listen to your leadership. D don't listen to your leadership. Just because that person's in authority, don't, you shouldn't trust authority. Don't ever trust authority. Rebel against authority. You should always question authority. You should always rebel against authority. Can I ask you a question? What's the origin of the devil's fall? Rebellion against God's authority. Is that not how the devil became the devil? He rebelled against healthy, appropriate, normal authority. And then ever since he's become the devil, what's the first thing in his questioning he was also encouraging humanity to do in the Garden of Eden? 
rebel against authority again, rebel against God's authority. And one of the subtle ways the enemy will work is to try and encourage people, listen, rebel against authority. All authority is bad. Resist authority. Resist authority in government. Resist authority in the home. If you're a child, rebel against your parents' authority. If you're a wife, rebel against your husband's authority. In whatever fashion authority exists, rebel against authority. Don't trust your leaders. Don't trust leaders. Leaders will never lead you in the right direction, and that's not true. The enemy here was trying to misguide them. Hezekiah was trying to help the people to trust the Lord. And he says here, listen, also don't let him get you to trust in the Lord. He's saying, look, don't trust your leader and don't trust the Lord. You think trusting the Lord is going to help you? That's not going to deliver you. He then goes on in his mockery. Do not listen to Hezekiah, verse 16. Thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me. Just compromise. Enter into a peaceful relationship with us. Buy a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree. And every one of you drink from the waters of his own cistern. In other words, if you enter into a relationship with me and my king, he's saying, then, then there'll be some prosperity that will come into your life. Who doesn't want an easier life? The devil always promises a path of ease a path of prosperity. You'll have your own fig tree. And why enter into a war? Why go through starvation? Why suffer by trusting God? Why trust God and suffer? You can have all this. Take a life of ease. Take a path of prosperity. Don't trust God. Take the devil's path. Take prosperity. Until, of course, remember, there's always a hook when the devil offers something or any enemy does, until I come and take you away <laughs> to a land like your own a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, they would be taken away as captives. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, verse 18, saying the Lord will deliver you. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Now that was true. That was a fact. But it's because those were all false gods. But he's again trying to get them to think. Think like the people in the world thought. They thought their God would spare them and their God failed them. So he says, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord, in other words, that your God, as if somehow he's any better than these gods, well, now he's poking God in the eye and he's mocking God. That's when things go awry, when the enemy starts mocking God himself should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. Your God can't deliver me. I'm the great king. I'm even greater than your God. He's not going to deliver Jerusalem from my hand. But, verse 21, they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. In other words, shows you that Hezekiah did have some good advice as their king. Hezekiah said, listen, the enemy is threatening. He's speaking lies. He's trying to cause doubt and discouragement. He's trying to get fear to arise in your heart. And the king's advice was in this situation, don't answer. Don't dialogue with the enemy. Don't get into a debate. The king's counsel to the people was, do not answer. Let him say what he's saying. Let the lies be spoken let the things be said, don't answer. Stay silent. 
If anything, the only way you should answer is by talking to God. But he says, don't engage in the conversation. Don't start retorting and saying things back. And sometimes, you know what? That is one of the wisest ways to overcome enemy resistance is to just stay silent. Don't answer a word. Don't get into a debate. Let people say what they say. Let lying voices communicate what they communicate. If they are lies, the Lord will sort that out in due time. Let the Lord be your defense. And so the king says, don't answer him. Be quiet. Verse 22, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah, these were the three members who went out and heard all this dialogue with the Rabshakeh, they came back to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, a sign of grief and concern and mourning. And they told him all the words of the Rabshakeh. So they repeated the report of everything that we just read here. So now King Hezekiah, getting word of this, verse 1 of chapter 37, so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes in great response. He's genuinely fearful. This is an understandable response. It's a great army outside your walls speaking threatening things. They've conquered lots of territories. This is a genuine concern, legitimate fear. Covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now, there was, there's Wisdom 101 right there. What do you do when there's spiritual warfare? What do you do when you're terrified? What do you do when you're confused? What do you do when you're struggling? What do you do when the battle intensifies? What do you do with any problem? You worship your way through the process. You don't go bury your head in a pillow. You don't go pout in your closet. You don't go hide somewhere. You go to the house of the Lord. And you seek the presence of God. And you, you, you pursue the ministry of the Spirit of God to, to wash truth over your mind and to minister to your soul. And I like this. As Hezekiah is faced with a real tragedy, this is a scary situation. This is a major tragedy. He's the king at this time. And it says, when Hezekiah got word of this, there's a strong response, but then right after the strong response, he went into the house of the Lord. Underline that, folks. That is a wise way to handle tragedy, problems, difficulties, and hardships. Don't go away from the house of the Lord. Don't go isolate. Go to God's house and work your way through it there. That's the place to go. That's the refuge. That's the safe haven. He goes into the house of the Lord, and then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet. So now they want to hear the word of the Lord. He goes to the house of the Lord. Now he tells these three men, listen, go to the man of God. Go to Isaiah. He's the one speaking the word of God right now. He's a representation of the word of the Lord, of word of God. Go to Isaiah the prophet. We need to hear God's word on this matter. That's a good place to go when you need direction in the midst of difficulties. Go to the word of the Lord. So they, they go to Isaiah the prophet, he says, and say to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day, notice, of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. Now, that's just poetic language of saying the absolute worst case scenario. <laughs> If you can imagine a woman laboring and laboring and laboring and laboring, and she is wiped out and exhausted, and now it's time to push, and she says, I don't have strength to. That's a major dilemma right there. They're not doing C-sections in this day, so we don't have that option available. So this is like absolute worst-case scenario in the poetic language. She's got to push the baby out now, and she doesn't. And so they're saying, look, we are hopeless. 
We are in a desperate situation, and sometimes we find ourselves in a desperate situation. Go to Isaiah, tell him it's desperate. It may be, verse 4, that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent, notice, to reproach the living God, and the Lord will rebuke the words, uh, will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for this remnant that is left. So he sends them to Isaiah and he says, look, tell Isaiah about the desperate situation and look what they say. It, he says, it may be, maybe God was listening when Rabshakeh on behalf of the king of Assyria as our enemy started mocking not just us, but then he started mocking God. He started making a mockery of God, and he says, maybe God heard what he said, and God's going to say, oh, now you've crossed a line. Not only have you mocked and intimidated my people, but now you're directly dishonoring me. And he says, it may be that God has heard, and maybe he will step into the story and into the situation, and he will rebuke and deal with the lying voice of the enemy. So they say, look, please, verse 4, would you pray for us? Isaiah, pray together with us. Seek God with us. Intercede on our behalf. I like this. They're seeking the word of the Lord from Isaiah. They're also seeking prayer. These are wise things to do. Pray for us in this desperate situation, and we should do that. Go to a person. Go to a respected, godly person and say, look, here's the situation. Would you please pray for us? Would you please pray for me? Intercede. We need God's intervention. So the servants of King Hezekiah, they came to Isaiah with this request and report. And Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord. Here was the word of the Lord. Do not be afraid. Now, you know things are going in a good direction. Well, that's the first thing God says. I know what it looks like. I know this is terrifying. I know this is a genuine problematic situation that's very dangerous, very desperate, but here's the word of the Lord. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. Don't become fearful. Don't become paralyzed in fear. Do not be afraid, says the Lord. The words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria, look, God says, they blaspheme. Look what he says, me. The battle belongs to the Lord. And he's like, he's blaspheming me. He's persecuting and blaspheming me in what he's doing to you. God gets directly involved. Surely, God says, verse 7, I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor. Interesting, God would use the sinful capacities of humanity, the rumor mill. God says, I'm going to let him hear a rumor. And through that hearing of the rumor, he's going to return to his own land. In other words, I'll make him turn away. By using everyday ordinary events, I'll let him hear a rumor about something, and that rumor will freak him out, and his own pride will be concerning, and that little rumor that he hears will be the way that I get them to, to stand down and to pull away. And he says, he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Eventually, God would slay him, allow him to be slain technically, and we'll see by his own family, and his, a sword would put him to death in his own land. In other words, God's saying, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of this. You don't have to do anything. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. I'm going to resolve the situation, God says, by my power, by my involvement. Then the Rabshakeh returned, 
and found the king of Assyria, his king, warring against Libna, for he had heard, just as God said, that he had departed from Lachish, and the king heard concerning Tirkah, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. In other words, this was the rumor. He heard that the king of Ethiopia was coming up, that he was going to attack, and he realized, whoa, wait a minute, I better pull off of Jerusalem here for a little bit to go reinforce so that the king of Ethiopia doesn't take territory in a rebellion against us, so he pulls back from Jerusalem for a period of time. Now, we don't get the whole historical narrative here. He pulls back from Jerusalem, and let me just fill in details from the other accounts. The king of Assyria is thinking in his mind, together with his Rabshakeh, hey, we don't want the people of Judah and Jerusalem to think that we're not going to conquer them still. So even though we're going to pull away temporarily, we got to keep them terrified still. We need to keep them intimidated and keep them doubtful and discouraged. So he just resorts to a different way to try and cause fear and discouragement since they've kind of pulled back for a period circumstantially because they then shortly come back and, and continue with the siege against the city. And that's why they have to be destroyed by the Lord. So what they do now, verse 10, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, do not let your God, whom you trust, uh, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. In other words, just because the enemy backed off a little bit, don't think that means that God's, don't think that means God's rescuing you. Just because God helped you a little bit, don't think that God's going to finish the process. God's still going to fail you. Just because you see a little bit of light, don't get a little bit of an encouragement, because ultimately, that's, that just looks like things are going in the right direction, but trust me, everything's still going to fail and fall apart. This is what the enemy's trying to say. Just because you got a little light and reprieve, don't take any rest or respite in that. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the other lands by utterly destroying them, he says, verse 11. And you shall be delivered, the idea is you think you'll be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those who my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Zarephath or Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Were the kings of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of the Sepharvim, and Henna, and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letter. So it seems this was in written correspondence. So it starts with verbal threat and intimidation. Now you've got written intimidation, written correspondence. They didn't have social media and nasty gram texts yet. and It was good, just good old-fashioned letters at this point. So they just write a letter and put it in writing to try and cause fear and intimidation and doubt again. Hezekiah gets this threatening letter, and look what it says Hezekiah does, verse 14. He received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it, and Hezekiah, again, went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. What wisdom here in Hezekiah? He gets this threatening document and he says, you know what? This is a little bit bigger than something I can handle myself. And he goes up to the house of the Lord, and he lays the letter out before the Lord, and he just starts praying, Lord, you got mail. Lord, you're going to have to answer this. And you know, sometimes in our lives, we may find ourselves maybe in a situation where we need to do something similar. Maybe for us, it's a, it, it's a, a, a horrible prognosis that we get back from a medical test. And we go, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. Or maybe it's some threatening bill that we're thinking, Lord, this is, this is going to sink us financially. 
Or maybe it is some nasty communication in the form of a letter or a text or social media of someone hiding behind a screen and saying some really rotten, hurtful things, and we're going, Lord, what do I do with this? And rather than hand on the way, sometimes I think it's really wise to just take it and, and lay it before the Lord and to just say, Lord, what, what do you want to do with this? How do I handle this? And he just spreads out the letter now. I like this. I think practically maybe it's wise to do the same sometimes. Spreads it out before the Lord, and then he prays. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the God who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord. See and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. You notice what he does in his prayer. The first thing he does is he just starts praising God for his greatness, for his power. Before he even makes a request, he just starts giving praise. You are the, he says, look what he says. You are the God of the Lord of hosts, that is of spiritual hosts, of the armies of heaven, of angelic armies. Interesting, God sends an angel to destroy them. You're the God of heaven's hosts and armies. You're the God of Israel. Take notice, folks. No other nation can say that. It's not the God of America. It's not the God of Japan. It's not the God of Russia. It's not the God. It's the God of Israel. It's the only nation that gets that title. He's the God of Israel. Is he a God that loves all nations? Yeah, but don't ever forget the word of God says he's the God of Israel. And his people, Israel, were being threatened here. You're the God of Israel. You're the God of creation. You alone. So he says, Lord, open your eyes, open your ears. You see what's being said, Lord. You hear what's going on. Lord, what do we do with this? Truly, verse 18, the kings of Assyria, he says, have laid waste to all the nations and their lands. They have cast off their gods into the fire, but they were not gods, he says, verse 19. They were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. That's why they were conquered. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, Save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Lord, of course those gods couldn't spare them. They're not real gods, but you're the one true and living God. And I like his prayer. His prayer is not concerned with, Lord, save my reputation. His prayer is, Lord, save your reputation. Lord, that all people may know that you're God that people's eyes would be on you by the end of this, that people through the intervention of God's answer in this prayer may know that you are the Lord. You know, when we pray those kind of prayers, Lord, I want what's best for your glory and your honor, those are the kind of prayers that God answers. And those are the purest kind of prayers that we should pray. Lord, not my glory, not my honor, my justification, my reputation, you know, my getting my way. Lord, what would honor you most? Lord, do what would honor yourself. Glorify yourself in this situation, Lord. Those are prayers that God delights to answer. Verse 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent back to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. Now in the verses ahead, he's gonna describe the doom in poetic language of a rebuke against the king of Assyria. But please notice here in verse 21, and I want you to underline this if you're a Bible underliner, and if you want to underline it, the person's Bible next to you. If they're not, you can help them out. 
Verse 21, I have this underlined. God says, because you have prayed to me. What's God saying? I hear prayer. I answer prayer. The reason I'm going to act in this situation is because you prayed. God's wanting to reinforce the value of prayer, the, the meaning of prayer. I don't know. What if they didn't pray to the Lord? Maybe things wouldn't have turned out the same way. It is very interesting to take note that the Lord says, because you have prayed to me, I'm going to fix this situation in response to your prayer. God listens to prayers. Our prayers make a difference. I don't understand how all of that works. I'm not that spiritual, but what I do understand is that God listens, and the Bible says the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. God tells us to pray. God says here, the reason I'm going to do what I'm going to do is because you prayed. I wonder sometimes, are there things where maybe God didn't do because we didn't pray? And maybe God would have done something. And be encouraged. If there's something you are praying about, at times the reason that God did it was because you prayed. It was your ministry of prayer that made the difference and God worked in the way that he did. Because you prayed, he says, this is the word against your enemy, Sennacherib. Verse 22, the virgin daughter of Zion, this is God's rebuke now, the virgin daughter of Zion has despised you and laughed you to scorn. Now, a virgin is someone, if I could use this language, who, a virgin is someone who has never been entered physically. And so God's using poetic language here. God's saying, just like a virgin who spurns the advances of this man who is trying to take advantage, he says, they're not going to have entry. They're, they're going to find themselves mocked and despised. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. In other words, she's going to say, you thought you were going to have entry, but you're done. Uh, Jerusalem is going to laugh you off, the idea is. Whom have you reproached, God says, and blasphemed? Whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? God's saying, against me, the Holy One of Israel. And by your servants, you have reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees, and I will enter its farthest heights to its fruitful forest. God's saying, you've become quite proud in your power. Yes, God granted power, but Sennacherib went way too far, and he fell in love with this power, and he began to abuse it, and he became a very destructive leader because he went way beyond the use of his power and authority becoming very torturous and barbaric. He says, verse 25, I have dug and drunk water with the soles of my feet, and I've dried all the brooks of defense. Verse 26, did you not hear long ago how I made it, how from ancient times that I formed it? Now again, now that I have brought it to pass that you should for crushing of fortified cities into heaps and ruins, therefore their inhabitants had little power they were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb and the grass, just like grass on the housetops that was easily scorched or uprooted and the grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling place. That's God's way of saying, I know where you live, buddy. You think you're untouchable? You think you can keep throwing around your power like that and abusing and hurting people and never answer for that? God says, 
I know where you live. And God says, I'll come visit with you. And eventually God was going to come and to deal with this. God says, I know your dwelling place, Sennacherib. You're going out and you're coming in. I've got your number, God says. And your rage against me, because that's what pride always is. It's rage against God. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way in which you came. Now, this was a common way we know historically in the barbaric cruelty that they would lead away and displace people from nations when they would conquer them. They would put a hook through their nose or through their lip, and they would string people along like a bunch of fish string together, and they would pull them in the direction where they would lead them captive out of their own territories, and then they would displace them. And God says, poetically, you're going to reap what you've sown. The things that you've done cruelty to others, he says, you're going to find are now going to be reaped in kind back upon you as I turn you back by the way from which you came. Now, verse 30, God transitions and speaks a word of encouragement to Hezekiah. Notice, God said, this is the word to him. Now he says, this shall be assigned to you. So here's God's word to Hezekiah. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. And the second year, what springs from the same? And in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. In other words, God says, you don't have to worry about starvation and disease. God says, listen, I'm going to sustain you. He says, I'm going to make sure that the provision that you already have, he said, you can eat that year what grows of itself, and in the second year and the third year, I'll continue to make that provision multiplied and to continue to sustain you. God says, I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure that you're sustained and that you're provided for. In the third year, then begin to sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. In other words, why would you sow and reap if your city's about to be conquered? Because God's saying it's not going to happen. It looks like it's all going to fail. It appears like this is the end and you should lose hope. Why bother planting? Why bother trying anymore? This is the end. Give up. Lose hope. Stop even trying. And God says, no, though it looks hopeless, Keep on. Keep going forward in the midst of hopelessness. God says, plant vineyards, eat the fruit, and the remnant, he says, who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from Mount Zion. Verse 32, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God says, I know what it looks like. But don't trust the way circumstances look. Sometimes the Lord has to say, listen, don't make your judgments off of how it looks. Because I can still do something no matter how it looks. I have power to accomplish anything. And the Lord says here, you continue to do the right thing. The Lord, by the zeal of his power, will accomplish what needs to be addressed and take care of it. And he says to them, I love the language there, verse 31, take root downward and bear fruit upward. What a beautiful little phrase from the Holy Spirit there. Take root downward and bear fruit upwards. How do you become fruitful? You got to put some roots down. You got to put roots down. Let me just say quickly before we conclude the chapter here, I think one of the reasons sometimes that people struggle with never becoming fruitful is because they never put down any roots. You've got to, in life, learn how to sink in some roots. 
If you're always uprooting and changing and transitioning and moving and uprooting and uprooting and uprooting and you never sink down roots, just like a plant, you're never going to bear fruit. The key to bearing fruit is sink down some roots. Sink down your roots in Jesus. Sink down your roots just generally in a church, in a ministry. Sink down some roots. Stay put. And when you do that, you'll bear fruit. Fruit will begin to bear. So many times people miss becoming fruitful because they never figure out how to stay put and sink roots downward. Verse 33, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege around it against, excuse me, by the way that he came, the Lord says, by the same way he shall return he shall not come into this city. Again, that's the word of the Lord. doesn't matter what the word of man says. God says, he shall not come into the city. Verse 35, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Why my servant David's sake? Because he gave to David the promise of the messianic line of Jesus Christ. And God's saying, I'm telling you, it does not matter what circumstances look like or what people say. God says, my word is what will always stand. And I love how God says here, I will defend this city to save it. How wonderful when God is your defense. I will defend, God says. We need to learn the lesson in faith to let God be our defense, to let God save us. And the chapter concludes giving us the record of what we've talked about many times before. And then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of Assyrians 185,000 and when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So in one night, God changed everything. It didn't take God six months. It didn't take God a year. When God is ready to deal with an issue, it may take him a lot longer to deal with an issue than we'd like him to. You ever notice that challenge? Lord, when are you going to deal with this? When are you going to deal with this? Because God's very patient. And God has timetables that are different than ours. But when God deals with something, doesn't take him long at all to dress it. In one night, one angel goes forth and 185,000 Assyrian troops are dead around the city and they realize that they've been defeated. God has intervened. God has answered their prayers. And even as God can overnight change situations for us and answer and intervene for us. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, just like God said, departed and went away. He returned home remained at Nineveh, and now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his God, that his sons, Adremelech and Sherezir, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and then Eshahardin, his son, reigned in his place. So again, even as God said that he would be struck down with the sword, that's exactly what happened through some intrigue among his own family and two of his own sons ended up putting him to death. And again, God's using natural everyday affairs and events of men and he's superintending over all those things and coordinating for his purposes. How wonderful to realize that, listen folks, it does not matter what people do, God will still always have his way. That's a great thing to have hope in. You guys are troopers. Let's stand together.